0: with me to the Gospel of John chapter 1. The Gospel of John, if you don't know what that is, it's page 991 in my Bible. Don't know what it is in yours, but John 1. And uh, welcome to week two of a series that has us walking through the Gospel of John and a gospel that calls on unbelievers to believe in Jesus Christ and a gospel that encourages believers to grow in our belief of Christ. And when I think about the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way, when I think about all of you, there are so many reasons that I have to feel overwhelming joy. I'm overjoyed by your faithfulness and the way that you serve and the way that you, you give in so many ways. I'm overjoyed when I think about our, our children and our youth and our college students and the future that that means for us all the fellowship, the food, the fun that we have together brings me joy. I'm overjoyed and I'm humbled when I think about your resilience and your patience in getting through um, the pandemic the way that we did. I'm overjoyed when I think about the way that you love and care for one another and living out the one another verses. And there is so much that fills my heart with joy when I think about the past, the present, and the future of the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way. But there is one reason above all of those reasons that gives me the most joy, which is your belief in Jesus Christ. Your belief in Him and who He is and what He has done. There is nothing... Nothing more important than believing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. There's nothing more than coming to see Him for who He is. See Him in all His glory. If we want to see God, as we've been saying, we look to Jesus. We see the glory of Him. I think most of us are aware, but the great state of Florida has this this phrase that we live by or that we're called, we're called the sunshine state. But did you know that five states other than us enjoy more sunshine than we do? So five states, so Arizona, California, Nevada, New Mexico, and Texas. In fact, it has been said that a better name for Florida would be the partly cloudy state, but that doesn't sound near as good, nor would that look as good on our tags. But we Florida has the most days Between where we have between 20 and 70 percent of the sun is blocked than any other place in the continental United States. So, what I'm getting at is this: the sun is 93 million miles away from the Earth, yet its enormous gravitational field keeps the Earth, for lack of better terms, tethered in its rotation around the sun. But what we know is that from the sun comes life, and from the sun comes Heat, radiating heat. I read this week about three NASA scientists who were meeting together as they were given the task of figuring out how NASA was going to spend the $10 billion that was allocated to it by the federal government to their programs. And this was early on before NASA hit its boom. And the the first guy basically said, Hey, I say we get very ambitious and let's put a man on Mars. Let's forget the moon. Let's go to Mars. The second guy said, well, that's good, but let's go further. Let's go to Venus. I mean, let's, let's set the bar as high as we possibly can. The third guy said, hey, I think those ideas are, are good, but let's go all the way. Let's go for broke. Let's go and put a man on the sun. Well, the other two scientists looked at him and said, Are you crazy? Like, are you an idiot? We burn up. The third scientist said, no, 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 I've got it all figured out. We'll go at night. I know that's a terrible joke. I I know it's a terrible joke, but... It does provide for us something to ponder, and that is this. Sunlight is the fuel of life. Its energy maintains everything upon the earth, yet the sun is unapproachable. You can't approach it. You can't put a man upon it. Well, there is another sun, not S-U-N, but S-O-N, the Son of God, who is our source of light, who sustains our life, and who enables us to know the unapproachable God. We see God by seeing Jesus. Jesus reveals God to us by coming down to earth, by taking on flesh, by placing himself in our everyday experiences, by resisting sin and temptation even while pursuing sinners by being the light of the world, a radiating, penetrating light, and by dying and rising again, this is our Savior, and He became flesh. So what I want us to do this morning in our second installment of our John series, we're going to look at verses 6 through 18 together. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's Word. In the beginning in verse 6, John writes this. him known. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are and Jesus, we thank you that you have made known to us. God, you you we look at you, Jesus, and we see the the beauty, the the majesty, the the absolute love and mercy and grace. We see God in looking at you, Jesus. We thank you for your life here on this earth, and there's so much that we can learn from it. So just speak to us today. As we walk through this gospel, as we said last week, if we have any unbelievers among us, may they become believers, and may you also, Lord, strengthen all of us in our belief of you. Have your way, in Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. So the most astounding reality in the world is that God became flesh and dwelt among us. It's called the incarnation. It's a Latin word meaning to become flesh. And it's a word that theologians use to explain how the second person of the Trinity came down from heaven, took on flesh as the God-man. And what the incarnation means is this, it's undiminished deity, in a body of unprotected humanity so let me say it again the incarnation means undiminished deity in the body of unprotected humanity and c.s lewis called the incarnation the grand miracle. In fact, he wrote these words, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. It was the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story has been about. The creator entered his creation The eternal entered time. God became flesh. But C.S. Lewis continued. He came down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still to the womb, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. Jesus came down in order to lift us up. He came down in order to bring us up. The greatest miracle of all is that wonderful, incomprehensible act by which God became human and what a human he was. What a human he was. Over the last 80 years, there have literally been thousands upon thousands of superhumans or superheroes created in the minds of men and women. In our world, it started with Superman and it grew to include the lights of Batman and Wolverine and Captain America and Wonder Woman, The Flash and more. Let's not forget the late 1980s DC comic, Arm Fall Off Boy. Oh, you don't know him? Arm fall-off boy? The guy who could detach his limbs in order to use them as weapons? How could we forget about him? But thousands of superheroes that capture our imaginations with their superhuman abilities. Wolverine can rapidly heal from any injury. Superman can fly and has x-ray vision. The Hulk has superhuman power, and he's always angry. Aquaman can breathe underwater. Spider-Man can climb walls. Wonder Woman has these divine-like powers. And the flash, of course, is fast. Really, really fast. Many children and even some adults have wondered what it would be like to have superpowers. Even some have had conversations. If you could pick one superpower, what would it be? Yet, Christian theology has something even more amazing because, unlike these fictitious superheroes, our hero truly lived. He truly lived, and in his powers, he exceeded all of the comic book lore. I love the words of J.I. Packer who said this, Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. Nothing in fiction is more fantastic than this. And in Jesus, God entered the human realm. He walked on water. He calmed storms. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He raised the dead. He died and conquered the grave. And he saves us from our sin Jesus's entrance into the world changes everything it changes everything and I know we've been all over the place so far so we've been from the sun to superman I I get that but now I want us to focus so we're gonna we're gonna focus in on three truths that emerge from these 13 verses ultimately pointing us to who Jesus is to what he's done and the fact that he became flesh so the first truth is this. The first truth that we see in, in the Apostle John's writing here is that, number one, God sent a witness. God sent a witness. The first five verses of John 1, John points us heavenward. Now, beginning in verse 6, John brings us down to earth. And he begins it with, verse 6, there was a man. So that's, that's an earthly thing. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, of course, John, who's writing this, isn't talking about himself. He's talking about another guy named John, who we know as John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 15 says, John bore witness about him. So here, the apostle John is speaking about John the Baptist, or a better name for him is John the Baptizer But since John was from Judea, which is South Israel, he was technically a Southern Baptist. (laughs) I had to throw that in there, but John the Baptist was born in order to introduce Jesus. If there was ever a person sent by God, it was John the Baptist. He was given as a gift to Jesus. Zachariah and Elizabeth, who were older in age, who could not have children. As Zachariah is serving in the temple, an angel comes and says, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. Here's a sign that's going to happen. You won't be able to speak until he is born. John miraculously comes in a beautiful way. But the picture is the first human being, and I say that purposefully, the first human being to respond to Jesus was John the Baptist leaping inside the womb of Elizabeth. When Mary comes, having conceived of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, the first person to respond to Jesus was a baby in the womb. That tells me everything I need to know about life. Exclamation point, that is it. But John is born, and parents probably begin to say, he's a little off. I mean, he's wearing camel skin. He's eating bugs and insects. He's a little off, but he's our gift from God, and so this John, beautiful, kind of weird, different life. But up until Jesus came, John was the greatest person who ever lived. Now you might say, well, what do you base that upon? Well, I base, I base that upon Jesus, and in Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus said this: I assure you of all who ever lived none is greater than john the baptist now what a statement do you mean do you mean john the baptist was greater than abraham yes greater than moses yes greater than david yes greater than isaiah yes greater than enoch or noah or jeremiah yes yes and yes why well i'm glad you asked that question because john was the greatest because he performed the greatest task, announcing for the first time, publicly introducing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the light of the world. That was his task, introducing, hear ye, hear ye, here he comes. That was the message of John. Now look at verse 15. In verse 15, look here. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he, comes, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now John was born first. John was six months older than Jesus. John began his ministry first. Yet John is saying here, He is before me because he ranks before me, meaning He's before me because he's always existed, and he ranks before me because he's God. John understood that Jesus was supreme. Let me give you a little mind bender on this. Jesus is the only person who has ever lived before he was born. Jesus is the only person to ever live before he was born. There was a book several years ago by Michael Shapiro, a Jewish author, and it was called The Jewish 100, and subtitled A Ranking of the Most Influential Jews of All Time. Now, according to Michael Shapiro, number one was Moses. Number two, surprisingly, was Jesus. Number three, according to him, was Albert Einstein. Number four, Sigmund Freud. Number uh, six, the Apostle Paul. Number seven, Karl Marx. Number nine, The Virgin Mary, she fell a little bit. Number 98, the great Sandy Koufax, picture for the the Dodgers. But if John the Baptist had his list, number one would be Jesus. Why? Because that's God's list. That's God's list. Jesus is not one among many. Jesus is the one and only. Let me say it again, he's not one among many, he is the one and only. And John had an amazing role to play in the ministry of Jesus, but don't miss it, so do we. So do we. We are witnesses. We are witnesses with something to say, and we are witnesses with something to show. In fact, we are called to do exactly what the moon does. The moon has no light in and of itself, but it re- reflects the radiating power and light of the sun in the same way we as believers we are called to reflect the glory and majesty and beauty of our savior not perfectly because we are imperfect and never be able to do that but even when we mess up we are able to show the world that we are forgiven that we have a savior who forgives us So God sent a witness, and he still does. But secondly, God called the world. God called the world. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now the first word, own, the first time you see own there in verse 11, it's a gender-neutral word referring to things like places or land, parts of creation. So it it could read, he came to his own things. The second on tells you it's masculine in gender, and it refers to a people. He came to his own people. So just think about how things responded to Jesus, how that first on. Water held him up because he created water. The storms obeyed his voice because he was over them. The physical universe responded in absolute obedience to him. But when it came to people who have a will and who have a choice, they did not receive him. His own people, the Jews, who had prediction after prediction of their Messiah coming to the earth, did not receive him. Jesus, the creator, the light, the life, came into his world, into his place, into his city, into his temple, and his people did not receive him the people of God as a whole had the law and had the prophets yet as a whole they did not receive Jesus but some did some did because when we get to verse 12 it says this but to all who did receive him Who believed in his name. He gave the right to become, don't miss it, children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So when I say that God called the world, this is what I mean God was and is in Christ calling the world to become children of God. God is in Christ calling the world to be born again. And just think about the way that John presents that in this prologue or in this beginning. In verse 3 of John 1, John says we are all creations of God. So God created us all in Christ. We're all creations. Every person who's ever lived or will ever live has been created by God. Yet here in verse 12, he says we can be children of God. Not that we're all born children, but we can be children of God by receiving God. And believing Him. What does it mean to receive Him? But to all who did receive Him. It means to welcome Him for who He is. It means to receive Jesus for who He is. If Jesus comes to you as Savior, then you must welcome His Salvation. If Jesus comes to you as leader, you must welcome his leadership. If Jesus comes to you as provider, you must welcome and trust his provision. If Jesus comes to you as counselor, you must welcome and heed his counsel. If Jesus comes to you as protector, you must welcome his protection. If Jesus comes to you as authority, you must welcome and submit to his authority. If Jesus comes to you as king, you welcome his rule as you bow the knee to him and according to the word of God Jesus has come to us in all of those ways and more have we received him for who he is but then we're also called don't miss it to believe in his name now many in our world have been convinced or even told from the pulpit that all it takes to get to heaven is just to say I believe and if you just say you believe, then you are in. But in Scripture, anytime we see the word believe, when it comes to salvation, it always has a preposition with it. Believe in, believe on, believe upon, believe that. All of those things pointing to Jesus. Believe in Jesus, believe on him, believe that Jesus did this or is this. So you believe on him. James or J. Vernon McGee gives this illustration of how we are called to believe, and he uses a chair. And I'm going to ask Brother Frank to come up and and help us out as our... He is my Vanna White this morning. (laughs) Basically, he got here first. He got here first. That was the... But many people, many many people... So this chair, many people would say, I believe this chair will hold me up. I believe that this chair will hold me up. This chair will hold me. But guess what they never do? They never sit down. They believe... They say they believe, I'll tell the world, I believe this chair will hold me. They never sit down. Now others, they say, I believe, and they sit down, but they don't put their full weight upon the chair. So they, they sit, but yet, there we go, they, they sit, but yet, it's like part of, on the chair, but but I'm bearing the weight myself, and especially when times get difficult, when things a fall apart, they show who they're trusting along, they get up. They get up. I'm trusting in myself. I'm trusting in what I can do. But for those who are truly saved, according to the word of God, they put, they sit down and they put all of their weight upon the chair. And they look as happy and beautiful as this in doing it. <laughs> Let, let's give our man a hand. But But here is the question for us. Think through this. Are you currently resting in Jesus? The question of salvation, the best way the Bible shows salvation, or are you currently saved, is not by, the Bible doesn't say, was there a time in your life where you did this, prayed this, walked this aisle, did this. No, the biggest picture of salvation in Scripture is this. Are you presently resting in Jesus? Are you presently resting in Jesus? Are you a child of God? I'm not asking whether your parents were Christians, your grandparents were Christians, or your uncles and aunts are missionaries. That's not what I'm asking. Are you a child of God? Because here's the deal God has zero grandchildren and God has no great grandchildren. God only has children. Are you his child? Are you his child? The light of salvation only shines through Jesus. Are you his child? J.C. Ryle puts it this way. Christ is to the souls of men what the sun is to the world. He's the center and source of all spiritual light. Like the sun. he shines for the common benefit of all mankind, for high and for low, for rich and for poor, for Jew and for Greek. Like the sun, he is free to all. All may look at him and drink health out of his light. If millions of mankind were mad enough to dwell in caves underground or to bandage their eyes, their darkness would be their own fault and not the fault of the sun. So likewise, if millions of men and women love spiritual darkness rather than light, the blame must be laid on their blind hearts. But whether men will see or not, Christ is the true Son. And the light of the world, there is no light for sinners except in the Lord Jesus. And all who have responded rightly to the light of God are called, don't miss this, children of God. Now, from a fleshly human standpoint, I think about my kids and how much I love my children. I love my kids. I adore them. I love being with them. I love spending time with them. I love being their dad. I love it. I love it. There's times it's like they're mine. And then there's times they're their moms. But but I love I love my children. And I think about, this is the language that God uses to describe me. I'm his child. I'm someone he loves being with. I'm I'm someone that he loves delighting in. How good is that? Now, from a human standpoint, I would say it's almost too good to believe, but the word of God says it, so that means it's gloriously true. It is true. Have you responded to the call, receiving Christ for who he is, believing in him, resting all upon him, becoming a child of God, born again. That is the call to the world. So God called the world. Lastly, lastly is this, God offered the word. God offered the word. In verse 14, one of the most Fabulous verses that connects John 1.1 with this. So John 1.1, we have that Jesus is God. But here we have, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, John 1.14 is a Christmas story. Now, it's not Christmas story or it's not historically the Christmas story, it's theologically the Christmas story. What happened at Christmas is that Jesus became flesh. Jesus became flesh. He became flesh. Infinity became infinite. The invisible became visible. Eternity is now squeezed into time. The supernatural is confined in the natural. Or to say it differently, God and Jesus lived in our neighborhood for 33 years. He came and he moved into our neighborhood. Jesus dwelt, that word means tabernacled, among us. In the Bible, there are three people, three types of people who lived in tents. Shepherds, sojourners, travelers, and soldiers. So shepherds, sojourners, and soldiers. They lived in tents because they didn't stay in one place very long. And Jesus lived in the tent of his humility for 33 years on this earth because he was a shepherd, he was a sojourner, and he was a soldier. He came to this earth as the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, so much so that when we hear the Lord is my shepherd, we think that's my Savior. That's who he is. Therefore, I shall not want he came to this earth as a sojourner. Jesus came for 33 years saying, "I'm just passing through in order to take you to where I was from the beginning. I'm just passing through, and Jesus is the soldier. Now we saw him in the book of Joshua a few months ago as the commander of the, the Lord's army, but in Hebrews 2:10 he is called the captain of salvation. He defeated the devil. So while he was here, he pitched his tent among us and he was full of grace and truth in doing it, meaning as the word became flesh, he got it. He gets it. Stop for a minute and just think about your hardest moments. Think about when you feel your fleshness the most. Think about the uh moments of life, the yuck moments of life, the frustrating moments of life, the vulnerable moments of life. Think of what it means to be weak in the flesh. And think about that and know this. Jesus knows. He knows. Not hypothetically, not merely by omniscience, meaning that Jesus knows everything. No, he knows because he experienced it. And it means that at the hardest moment of your life and my life, when it's difficult and we can't even muster a God thought, if it were to even smack us in the head, Jesus knows where we are and praise be to God, He comes alongside of us. And we see in the midst of our journey, even the darkest spots, we see His footprints, meaning He's already been there. He's already been there and He is leading us out. He enters to where we are from where he is in the majesty of God. And then let me end. Let me end with verse 16. I wish I had time to go all the way through, but I don't. Verse 16, in the middle, it says this, For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Do you know what that means? It means grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace. grace. It's sort of like... When grace leaves, more grace comes. Leaves, more comes. It's like the the ocean. We go to the ocean and we look at the ocean and one wave comes in. Then it recedes and here comes another. And it recedes and here comes another. And it goes out and here comes another. We leave and come back in an hour. It's still doing it. We leave for two weeks, we come back, it's still doing it. We leave for a year, we come back, it's still doing it. We we leave for 20 years, we come back, it's still doing it. In other words, from a human standpoint, it's inexhaustible. In a much greater way, so is the grace of God. More grace comes, and it comes, and it comes. And you might be sitting here this morning, you might be saying, that sounds great, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know my problems. And you know what? You're right. I don't. But Jesus does. But Jesus does. And you might be, you might be saying, well, that, that's good, but, but you don't know what I've been through. Well, you're right, I don't know what you've been through, but I know what Jesus went through for you. I know what he went through for you, and what he's been through enables us to receive all of his promises. So no matter how bad things have been, how bad things are, or how bad things feel, hear this this morning, his grace can handle you. His grace can handle you. His grace is sufficient for you. That's His grace. There's a great text in Romans 5 that says where sin abounds or increases, His grace abounds all the more. We just sang about it and singing about His grace. Literally, when sin reaches its high water mark, grace comes even higher. That's the message. Grace comes higher. God's grace can handle you. That's who Jesus is. That's what he has done for us. And there's no one else that can do that for you. You can't do that for yourself. The closest person in your life right now can't do that for you. The government can't do that for you. Only Jesus can do that for you. Let me end this way. I'm going to ask you to pay attention, which is a little little tough. I've gone a long way, but just just pay attention here. In his book, Searching for, for God Knows What, Donald Miller tells a story that on one occasion he was speaking to a class at a Christian college. So hear that, Christian college. He stood in front of the group, and he announced that he was going to share the gospel with them with one difference. He was going to leave out one critical element. He warned the class in advance that it was a, a major part and he was going to require them to tell him what he left out afterwards. So he went on to describe the rampant sin that plagued our culture, immorality, adultery, homosexuality, abortion, drug use, addiction, self-centeredness, and so many other things. He said that according to the scripture, the wages of sin is death and sin separates all of us from God. He went on to describe the beauty of morality and told stories citing examples of how righteous living is so much better. He spoke of the greatness of heaven and described it complete with a landscape of spectacular beauty. Finally, he shared the caveat, repentance how it would make life purposeful and pure and full of meaning, going into detail about what it is that they would be saved from if only they would repent, and how their lives could be God-honoring and God-centered. Describing what happened next, Miller writes this, I rested my case and I asked the class if they could tell me what it was that I had left out of this gospel presentation he waited for several awkward minutes not a single hand raised no one could identify the missing component of the gospel as far as the students could tell Miller had been complete closing his case Miller writes I presented a gospel to Christian Bible college students and I left out anybody left out Jesus left out Jesus and hear him, nobody noticed. Even when I said I was going to neglect something very important, even when I asked them to think very hard about what it was, even when I stood there for several minutes in silence. And here's what he concludes. To many in our culture, Jesus is completely unnecessary. At best, he's an afterthought a technicality by which we become morally pure, or a subject of which we should know more about. Yet, brothers and sisters, that is not God's opinion concerning his Son. Jesus is God who took on flesh and came to us and he came for us. He lived a life of perfection, a life none of us could ever live. He died for the sins of all mankind, bearing the full weight of God's wrath against him, paying the full punishment for your sin and my sin. And he conquered an enemy, death and the grave that none of us could ever conquer. So that if we confess with our mouth, The Lord Jesus. Meaning receiving Jesus for who he is. He is Lord. He is Lord. And he is all the things that we mentioned. Receive him for who he is. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus. And believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. We will be saved. Let me end this way this morning. Jesus is not an afterthought. He is before all thoughts. He is before all things. And he is necessary. He is necessary. He's not just necessary for your life a thousand years from now. He's necessary right now. He's necessary. He is necessary. He became flesh so that we could be saved, but he also became flesh so that we could make it today, so that we could make it tomorrow. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have in him grace Upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. Are you living in that today or are you missing out? If you're not living in that, you are missing out. I want to call you today to respond to his grace in whatever way. And he has enough grace for you. He has enough grace for you. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It never ends. Respond to it today. I'm going to call Brother Frank and the musicians forward as we enter in this time of invitation and consecration, saying whatever it is that the Lord is saying, may we obey. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you that you became flesh and dwelt among us. You came to us. You came for us. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room today that doesn't know you, that today might be a day of salvation, of turning from sin, of turning from self, of turning to you, Jesus. As Savior and Lord, receiving all that you are, believing in all that you have done. Today being a day of salvation, but also, Lord, pray for believers across this room. Some of us, we believe, but we're not putting all of our weight upon you. We still have a little bit of weight upon ourselves, and when times get tough, we find ourselves trusting more and more in ourselves. But we're not full of grace and truth, and we don't have grace upon grace upon grace in us. Therefore, we need your grace upon grace upon grace. When our sin increases, and oh, at times it does, we need your grace to overflow. And we need your grace not just for that. We need it for every day. We need it for every step that we take, for every breath that we breathe in, for every thought, for every word, for every response. We need your grace. Finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.